Welcome everyone to What the Force and welcome to an interview with the author of Shakespeare's Star Wars, Ian Desher. Welcome to the show, Ian. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I am so happy to have you here. I've been reading your books since they started coming out. I think, you know, of course, Star Wars, The New Hope 1 came out first. And uh, as somebody who has always loved Shakespeare, it's just like a perfect Venn diagram of my two interests. And also, because it's an adaptation, you're allowed to take I guess, some artistic license with <laughs> with the stories themselves a little bit to explore maybe more of the POV, but spoken because of monologues and soliloquies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, as a Star Wars fan, that's been the most fun thing about these adaptations is is getting inside characters' heads and imagining what it is that they're feeling and thinking in the moments where we don't necessarily hear from them in the movies. We're just sort of seeing their faces as being dramatic. So yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and even with the you know novelizations where we get a little bit more of say potentially characters POVs, it's never quite as beautiful as how you do it with your monologues. They're so good, and oh, I've you. loved what you've done with like R two D two, his like almost sinister. Uh, Iago-like plotting and uh, the haikus that Yoda does, they're they're just all so wonderful because Yoda's speech is already sort of feels Shakespearean in some ways. So to do something different was was just wonderful. And it was it took a while to come around to doing haikus. There were a, a bunch of different things I was thinking about for Yoda. And once I had the haiku idea, I was like, I think this is it. I think this is the right one you're also coming to the end of an era as well as Star Wars is because this has been a nine book uh, play, a journey for you that like, (laughs) you've been been along for the ride to like adapt every single one of the saga. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I mean, I, I think it's only sort of just now hitting me and I'm kind of starting to process it because this, these books, because they happen so quickly, are sort of a whirlwind. And it's sort of now dawning on me like, yeah, wow, I've done nine of these. And now I've done the entire Skywalker saga. And that's that's a lot. Uh, and it's been nothing but joy. But uh, but here we are at the end of it. <laughs> I, I made a joke to you on Twitter once. Well, not really. It was somebody had asked, what kind of Star Wars movie, anything that you would want? And I said, I would love to take any Shakespearean play and adapt it for Star Wars and just make it like way, way, way in the past. So it feels like new. And you were like, I'm in. Because yeah. <laughs> like so many of the themes and, you know, the tragedy specifically, but also the comedy, you know, feels so Star Wars. And, you know, why is that? Why is it so similar? I, I mean, I think it's really that, any story, uh, any good story has human emotions haven't changed over time. Like the feelings <laughs> that we feel, you know, fear or love or sadness or, you know, wonder or whatever it is, right? These things have been with us for centuries and forever, right? Um, and so mm-hmm. I think that good stories draw on those same emotions, whether we're talking about Hamlet or Star Wars, right? And And so... I've actually in, you know, over the years, people ask me about like different things I might adapt. And, and uh, the, the like real secret is that I think just about anything would work as a Shakespearean adaptation if it's a good story. Right. Uh, I mean, if you have a good story with rich characters who are, you know, struggling through things and feeling things, you know, I I think it's going to adapt to Shakespeare because that's what Shakespeare did also. It's also in some ways, Star Wars, plugged into popular media and popular storytelling. And Shakespeare was trying to do that. Like, we 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 uplift him a lot more than he was maybe me- meant to be uplifted in the olden days, because it was like, it was the popular media of the time was going to the theater and seeing these shows, and they would produce them in rapid succession because people wanted to see things, you know, new every week or every two weeks, because... Oh, I've already seen that one, you know, or and and that's why there was a lot of drama, high heightened drama and heightened emotion, because that was their entertainment. So it's like, you know, 
the things that we love about reality TV shows when people get into fights or arguments or uh, there's love involved. That's what Shakespeare plugged into these heightened emotions because he really, really wanted to, you know, plug into, hey, this is what's going to get the butts in the seats or the groundlings on the floor kind of right. thing. <laughs> and I've been saying for years that I think if Shakespeare were alive today, he would be writing things like Star Wars. He would be writing the popular entertainment of our day. Yeah, exactly. Because he he plugged into that and it was what sold, you know. Yeah, and for sure. And it was popular from, you know, people on the street all the way up to the queen and the kings. <laughs> yep. Yep. I mean, just like today, right? Uh, I mean, S Star Wars has permeated the world in a way that almost nothing else has. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's hard to think of, of many other things that are known worldwide and loved worldwide in the same way. And also like speak to, you know, who we are as humans in some ways, mm -hmm. like with the ties to the hero's journey and, you know, story in and of itself does that, but it plugs into it in a more intentional way than many stories produced do uh, because that's that was Lucas's intention. And, you know, that's that in and of itself is really fascinating. Um, I think I, I heard you speak about this before, but that it, writing and speaking uh, in iambic pentameter is very easy for you. <laughs> like it was almost like a weird, like gift that you have. Well, it's something that has, I mean, I've loved verse uh, for a very long time. And, you know, I, I grew up on Dr. Seuss, who is, is so tight with his verse. Um, and, and then when I started learning in high school about uh, poetic feet and meter and all these things, you know, it, it all made a lot of sense to me. And, and I was the kind of nerd who who would just write things in verse for fun, you know, over the years. And so, you know, writing William Shakespeare's Star Wars, the first book, it wasn't the first time I'd written iambic pentameter. And the the great thing about it is, the more you do it, the the easier it becomes. Um, and so and so, yeah, it really is. I mean, I hate to say that writing an iambic pentameter is easy for me, but it but it is like it is just kind of just there naturally, you know. And the lines come to me a lot a lot faster than they do for people who aren't used to it. Yeah. It, you've almost trained your brain to think that way and yeah. with a with practice too because hey, you've got uh many many books now uh out in this style. Um what is your favorite way to experience this work? Like is it have you have you seen others do play readings of it? I mean, we've of course heard the audiobooks for a few of the Productions. I think it was the original trilogy as well as the uh, the Force Doth Awaken. Force, the Force Doth Awaken. Yes, yeah. those those were done incredibly well because they had like full cast and uh, sound effects. And yeah, <laughs> things. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, that's that's just about the height of of um, the way I've experienced my own stuff. You know, uh, those audiobooks are really so well done. We also were able to do. In May, Quirk Books, my publisher, had this idea to do some, they, they called it Pop Shakespeare Live. And, and so we did some Zoom uh, performances uh, of snippets of a few different books. And so we did uh, some scenes from William Shakespeare's Star Wars on May the 4th. And, um, and th we did it with this, this theater company that popped up at the start of coronavirus called The Show Must Go Online. Um, and they, they are led by uh, Robert Miles, who is just a really brilliant and creative uh, director. And so he was able to, to bring some of these things to life. And that, and that even brought this other dimension, you know, to it that the audiobooks don't have, which is sort of the visual component also. And, mm -hmm. um, and so that was a lot of fun as well. So I would say, I would say between that and the audiobooks, those are, uh, you know, your two favorite experiences <laughs> with <yeah>. your work. <laughs> I mean, that and having Ian McDiarmid read a Palpatine speech at uh, Celebration back in 2014, I think it was, or 2015. Uh, I mean, it doesn't actually quite get much better than that as a Star Wars fan. So. <laughs> Ian, Ian reading Ian. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So I, I love the title, uh, The Merry Rise of Skywalker. Uh, you know, I, I, 
as how meta and thoughtful it is, you know, with the history of Falstaff for the Merry Wives of Windsor. Was that intentional that, you know, Falstaff being a character that was killed off in a previous play and um, brought back to life? inexplicably in the Merry Wives of Winter because the Queen commanded it. Um, I mean, I think you pointed that out on on Twitter. And if it wasn't you, it was somebody else. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that, no, I, I wish I could say, I wish I could say that that, that uh, level of thought had gone into it. The reality is that the, uh, the title we came up with, or we, we came up with various titles basically shortly after the title was announced. So that's, you know, months mm-hmm. before the movie actually comes out. And, and you know, uh, we thought about things like Skywalker Death Rise or, or things like that. But, we you know, to a certain extent, you don't want to reuse things that you mm-hmm. had already used. Um, I liked what we had done with some of the other pop Shakespeare stuff I've done, like with uh, Much Do About Mean Girls and Taming of the Clueless, where we are using Shakespearean titles to actually sort of inform the uh, the titles of these books. And so that was playing into it a little bit too, right? I, I thought about, well, maybe we should just call this one All's Well That Ends Well, right? Um, but then we had happened on this idea of Mary Rise of Skywalker, and that was before we had any idea whether or not it was going to be Mary or not. Uh, you know, and yeah. there are plenty of, plenty of people right now who are who are you know, I think chafing a little bit at the title, saying Mary. Huh, what does that mean? You know, it's not Mary, uh, but anyway. Well, I mean, it does ha- have Palpatine come back, who is a fan favorite. So now you can own it. You can be like, right. it wasn't intentional, but it was in there subconsciously. That's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also love that you, uh, you know, acknowledge that uh, there is, you know, some tragedy to this uh, story and combine it not only with the comedy involved, but, you know, pull heavily on Romeo and Juliet, uh, especially with the star-crossed lovers idea, because we do get that with Ben and Ray, um, you know, it, the enemies, you know, and maybe much ado about nothing would have been better because of how much they're enemies, but it doesn't end up happily for them, unfortunately, in the end. The Romeo and Juliet parallel is just so plain in that scene in The Rise of Skywalker. Um, mm-hmm. You know, be- whenever you have somebody dying as somebody else is coming back to life and then there's a kiss involved. And I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> it, it feels very much like Romeo and Juliet. Um, and so, yeah, that was something that I sort of instantly... Uh, glommed onto and, and wanted to bring out. I also loved that you wrote a scene for the character that John Williams played in in the movie. Because uh, I actually complained about this on my... I'm like, they put John Williams in the movie and we just get to see him for like two seconds. We don't even get to like... Like they did this nice homage with the stuff behind him, but we didn't really get him like to say anything or... And and you gave that to us with his exceptional like talking about his his job almost, and it's very meta and smart because he's kind of talking about how he, um, you know, watches everybody uh, pass through, and you know he he has. Um, established the rules of certain things kind of like the themes and one of the one of the things I do on this podcast is actually I have a composer that comes on um named Chris Crew and we actually analyze his work and the music of Star Wars and I showed her this page of it and she like was like that is brilliant because of <laughs> you've also embedded the theme of Star Wars so the main theme into that paragraph it's beautiful Thank you. I mean, I wanted to do something to, you know, a a silent cameo works in a movie, but doesn't work in a book. Uh, You know, I needed to do something to draw him out a little bit. And so I was trying to, again, this is, this is one of those cases where like this character doesn't actually say anything. All we get is him sort of giving a dirty look to the the good guys as they walk by. Um, And so I was trying to sort of think, okay, well, well, he's, he's an old guy. He's a bartender. Uh, we know from we know from a new hope that bart- bartenders don't like droids, uh, so maybe that maybe that's just a thing. We don't know why, but that's just a thing, right? Um, and and so maybe he can sort of be 
uh, fussing about them. But at the same time, I was like, I have to work in John Williams's music somehow. Um, and so, yeah, so I did have this idea to, to sort of embed the notes through the O's, capital O's and the dots above the I's um, throughout the speech. Um, and it was, it was one of these things where I was like, I don't know if this will work. I don't know if I can actually do this. Uh, I guess we'll You're find like, out. I, I set myself a challenge. Yeah, yeah, which I like doing. Uh, and and so I tried it, and uh, and it worked out okay. So um, uh, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to to you know I, I do love a good writing challenge, and um, and that was definitely one. And, and hopefully, it pays tribute to to his cameo. <laughs> I think it does. And it, um, I don't know, it, it made me happy reading the acknowledgements and not realizing and then going back and reading it and like understanding more how purposeful it was. So I love when there's intention behind choices. And this is like a very beautiful, you know, tribute to him. So thank you. Because it's hit the end of his journey too with Star Wars as well which is right. kind of not that you're done i'm sure you'll come back when <laughs> there's more to write <laughs> uh yeah and and that was one of the, we don't often make easter eggs explicit but that mm-hmm. was one where i was like if i don't if i don't talk about it and, and point it out no like there there are other easter eggs that people will realize are there but other ones like you just will never know it's there if you don't uh you know uh if if you're not told that it's there and so that one I felt like had to be sort of explained. Yeah. Yeah. As well as like a little bit of the Romeo and Juliet. Like, was this purposeful? Yes, it was. Yes. Right. That's right. <laughs> um, so is our Easter egg something that you, like you come up with? Is it something that you're like working with your editor with? Like, how how do you kind of come up with those things? Because Easter eggs are are very, uh, very Star Wars in and of themselves, but usually they kind of play a purpose to say like, hey, I see you. I see you, longtime fan. You know, I'm paying attention. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they are all, they're all me. Uh, they're not something I, I consult with my editor or with Lucasfilm on. Um, uh, I would say that that in the last, the last few books, um, both Star Wars and not, uh, you know, there's been a little more nervousness around actually uh, making references to other properties. Like, like a Star Trek reference wouldn't fly any anymore. Mm. Um, and there is like there is a Star Trek reference in um, in Barely a New Hope. Um, and so, so I'm a little bit more constricted in what what I can do. But basically, I mean, those started from the first book because I was like, hey, I'm writing a book. Who knows if I will ever get to write another book? Uh, and so I'll just throw a few things in here because I think it's fun, you know. Uh, and and sometimes they are pre-planned, and sometimes they're just sort of suggested by the moment, you, you know. In mm-hmm. in Phantom Menace, when you have uh, Qui Gon Jinn and Obi Wan suddenly facing off against Darth Maul, and I'm like, okay, well, I just have to like Liam Neeson has to give his Taken speech right here. Like, yeah. how would that, like, <laughs> it's just too perfect, right? I mean, there are just some moments, some Easter eggs that are like, it's just too perfect not to do it here. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, it ends up being homage in some ways because you're changing, like, the actual language, et cetera. But it feels the same and it has the same kind of through line. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was wondering if uh, you would be interested in reading a few pieces or parts from... Sure. Uh, the Merry Rise of Skywalker. Uh, I think that we have talked about doing both uh, Ben's, I guess, his his atonement monologue. I do you have names for them? <laughs> I, I don't. I don't have names for them. Um, so, so this first this first uh, soliloquy. This is when this is right after uh, Kylo Ren uh, has had his encounter with the ghost of Han Solo, um, mm-hmm. uh, and he throws his lightsaber into the water and then he turns around and Han is gone. Uh, And this is what uh, Kylo Ren says. Now I have taken heart, thou vanishest. Sweet spirit, I would hold more talk with thee. This visitation marks a turning point, the end of one life as another starts. I must be strong, remember my first call, and shun the folly that consumed my life. The years spent with the vile first order shall become the nadir of a human life, the lowest rung upon my ladder tall, the ebbing of the ocean of my days, the bass notes of the symphony of time. 
However long my strand of life shall be, ere fate ordains to clip it and release my life into the force forevermore, I shall exist to bring light to the world, deliver hope to those too long oppressed, make recompense for all the wrong I've done. The work beginneth now, as I proceed to Exegol to face the Emperor. Defeating him must be the initial deed in making up for Kylo Ren's foul works. The name doth leave a rotten taste inside my mouth. What vanity to turn away the name my loving parents proffered me. No evil knave, no longer Kylo Ren. I turn away from he who I was then. From now I am a solo once again. The son of Han and Leia. I am Ben. I am Ben. That's so good. He's Ben. And then from then on, I think in the book, uh, he is referred to as Ben and not Kylo Ren. Not Kylo Ren. Yeah. Yeah. What was uh, really important for you to get across in that section? Um, I think the the most important thing for me was this sense that he feels like he needs to make up for the things he's done. Mm-hmm. You don't get that explicitly in the movie, except by his through his actions, partially because he doesn't talk. I think yeah. even I think from that moment forward, he doesn't talk in the movie except to say "ouch" uh, yes. when he yeah. And so, um, and so we don't, we don't really know what, what's going on for him. Um, and I wanted to give him this sense. You don't run into hell without like wanting to, to make a difference, you know? Right. Right. Exactly. I want, I wanted to give him this sense of, of like, I know I've done things I shouldn't have done and now I want to make up for it. Yeah. And it's, it's a very powerful speech. I actually, this is one of the ones that really got me misty, like, because I I feel a lot of empathy for Kylo Ren and Ben Solo. Kylo Ren, Ben Solo, they're the same person. But, you know, th- I feel a lot of empathy for him being stuck. Like, he really hasn't had a lot of choice his whole existence but to be, you know, trapped in an evil snare web by Palpatine in the end, we find out. And, like, to have finally been released from that is very powerful and to have such a singular focused mind on what he needs to do is is very powerful and i think that that's one of the most powerful moments in the movie is when he turns back to the light mm-hmm. yeah yeah for sure okay did you also want to read the section kind of at the end uh with ben and ray and this is the one that more specifically pulls on the language of Romeo and Juliet, especially that end scene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where do you want to? Where do you? Where do you want to start? Um, that do you want to start at his his sort of long monologue, or do you? Uh, where do you want to start? Let me check. Sorry, I didn't. Uh, I'm on page bottom of page one fifty four. Would be a place to start, or we could start somewhere on one fifty five. Uh, I have the PDF open, which means it's a little jumpy. <laughs> uh, okay. 154. Yeah, let's start it uh, when Ben's, when he comes back on 154. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's so good. That's perfect. When he, Ben, <laughs> enter Ben Solo through trapdoor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why? for long as we've got it there on the stage, we might as well use it. Uh, so this is what Ben says. Once fallen, broken, yea, but not yet dead. I grope and fumble, finding purchase on the rock, that I may to the scene once more, although I sense the enemy is gone. He climbs into the throne room and stumbles to Ray's side, sitting next to her. So soon turned ally, Ray, and too soon gone. Why art thou yet so fair? Shall I believe that unsubstantial death is amorous, and that the lean, abhorred monster keeps thee here in dark to be his paramour? For fear of that, I still will stay with thee. And never from this palace of dim night depart again. Here, here will I remain with worms that are thy chambermaids. Oh, here will I set up my everlasting rest and shake the yoke of inauspicious stars from this world-wearied flesh. Eyes, look your last. He takes her in his arms. Arms, take your first and last embrace of her. Still now thy thoughts, Ben. Join her in the force. Whatever life I have within me yet, thus proffer I to her that she may live and in full recompense for who I've been and what I've done and wherefore I did so. Ben puts one hand on Ray's side and transfers life to her through the force. Ray revives and puts her hand on his. Oh, comfortable touch. Where is my foe? I do remember well where I should be. And there I am with Ben here by my side. To Ben. Ben, 
thou didst come and saved me from death's grip. She kisses him. They smile at each other. Thus from my lips, by thine, my sin is purged. Ben dies. My life I see hath been his timeless end. Oh, it's so sad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's sad. Um, And I mean, there's a lot of, uh, if for for people who don't necessarily recognize it immediately, um, there's a lot of Romeo and Juliet in there. Um, When he, when he first happens on her, uh, I mean, there are like eight or 10 lines that are borrowed from Romeo and Juliet. So I was really, really trying to hammer that home. Why was that important? Well, I just think, I mean, anytime I have these real things where I feel like there are really strong parallels between Mm -hmm. Shakespeare and Star Wars, I guess I would almost say that like the stronger I think the parallel is, the more lines I'm going to borrow. Uh, in some in some ways, right? And so uh, the one that's popped into my head is you know Luke's speech before uh, before the final Death Star battle in Verily a New Hope. Uh, you know is is modeled in a lot of ways after Henry V's speech before the Battle of Agincourt. And so there are you know a good number of lines that that he uses uh, here and there uh, throughout the speech uh, that parallel with Shakespeare's text. Um, and, and I don't know I. I guess in some ways it sort of feels like like reaching across that that expanse of of time and different you know stories and that sort of thing and and really sort of linking arms with um, you know with another text uh, and and saying hey uh, we're doing this together this is a this is a shared moment that we're all sort of uh, feeling right here like that these experiences and these stories of tragedy and loss and do affect us and that they come up again and again for reasons. Um, why, you know, I, I, I'm really, I'm, I'm wondering why this is like, you know, so humanistic in some ways, because like, it, it feels like we, we, you know, sometimes want to cry, <laughs> you know, um, why, is star-crossed lovers like such a, I don't know, a thing that we pull onto ourselves? I mean, that's as, a as storytellers. <laughs> that's a good question, and I don't, I don't know that I have an answer. I mean, I guess maybe because love is is in some ways one of the ultimate emotions, and so the idea that there would be something getting in the way of that um, kind of kind of instantly makes for a good story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I, I mean. Uh, I actually didn't know until I think it was until my my the Force Doth Awaken actually came out. I, I think it wasn't until then that I sort of learned about the like Finray camps and the Raylo camps and that sort of like, <laughs> like uh, I didn't realize how big those those sort of worlds were and 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 that sort of thing and and so so I guess I I wouldn't go so far as to say that I think that Ray and Ben. Um, would actually be lovers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, in a in a different world, um, but that the, there is this connection that they sense there, right? And mm-hmm. and I mean, you know, uh, frankly, I don't know how I feel about the kiss at the end of that of that movie. It's 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 a it's an interesting moment, right? Um, yeah. But because it exists, it feels like okay. Well, then let's set up this dynamic where, if if not lovers, at least it's these two people who have a profound connection with each other. Um, mm-hmm. And they both re- they both know it. They both recognize it, and they both realize that that you know death is sort of surrounding that connection that they have. Um, now she doesn't know in that moment. You know w- when they kiss, she doesn't. I think know that he's about to die. Um, yeah. Um, it would it would almost be uh, a, a really different scene if she kissed him after he died or something like that, right? Um, mm-hmm. But so so I don't know. It, it's, to me, it's kind of a it's kind of a mystery of like, what would Ray and Ben have been had things gone differently? I don't know. Yeah, I I I struggle with that too because it almost like and that's to the original text. It almost like tries to be like, hey, what do you want to see in this movie? You know, and and that and that's a struggle for an audience if you're not clearly defining like, okay, what are you trying to say, movie? You know, like it's well, true. You know, yeah. And I mean, actually, that's I mean. That is, I would say, there's not a whole lot of ambiguity we're left with at the end of this movie. But that is one of those pieces I think that is that is still out there. It's like, oh, what what was that? What's well, what is that? 
I mean, did they, so they killed the emperor, but did they get rid of the first order? Well, is, actually, is you're right. Is evil gone? You know, I, yeah. I actually What's going think on that... with Finn? Actually, yeah. Yeah, yeah. let me there's strike a... that comment from the record. There's there's definitely ambiguity <laughs> at the end of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and I struggle with it personally because it's like, this is, it, was it purposeful to say, like, the the struggle always continues and i i don't know that that's the ending that i particularly want and it it and many people that i speak to are like well it begs the question like what happens next but it was that purposeful at the end of a nine movie arc i i don't know i, I mean, don't it's, know it, it's hard because i think as a as a storyteller to actually sort of wrap up every loose end perfectly is is nearly impossible, right? Oh yeah, and and it also is like, uh, I mean, the the thing now that's popping into my head is uh, is Into the Woods, this Stephen Sondheim musical. Oh, I don't know yeah. if you, you know that at all, but yeah, like, I do, yeah. basically, okay, yeah. So basically, like the first half ends with all these fairy tales reaching their like happy conclusion. The first, did I say the first act? I meant to say the first the act. First, I don't know what I you said. said. You said the first half. Which oh, yeah. Is, okay. Well, that's also, also correct. Uh, the first <laughs> act ends. And then the second act is like, but okay, everything now, went wrong. What? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, right. It's like, it's like what happens after life ends, quote unquote, happily ever after. And, and, and I guess it is in some ways truer to human life that like, except in death, things don't really end. Right. So like mm-hmm. Ray and Finn and Poe are going to go on and have the, more life plenty of more life they're all young and you know so like i don't know so it's it's dissatisfying maybe as a moviegoer but also in some ways truer to human life i don't know it's it's a tricky one it is yeah and i i think you do a good job of the speech at the end to say like oh yeah there's still adventures and things on the horizon for ray um even though she um we can't clearly tell that in the movie, you know, there is kind of hope in her, you know, where she's going to go next, which is nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, you you handle uh, the force bond scenes or the the force time communication really interestingly. You have stage directions where, uh, you know, one or the other will like walk onto the stage and then they're talking to each other. So it's like they're the the force bond time uh where they can only see each other and then uh i loved how you did that that was really great (laughs) well thank you that's i mean that's one of those moments that you know it's so easy to do in in movies but like when you think about how would you actually stage this in a theater it it is tricky because it's it's like this is a how would you get across the sense that they are in different places and yet they're communicating and yeah, so that that is, I feel like, been sort of a challenge uh, with this book and the last because that's where the where we see that connection between them. So, uh, moving a little bit away from the saga itself and into my Twitter question, <laughs> which is, if you could adapt a Shakespearean, uh, you know, play or one of Shakespeare's works directly into the Star Wars universe and make it work, which would you choose? Why? How would you do it? One that I've thought about doing, actually not with Star Wars, though I think it would work well, uh, but I thought about actually doing it with Star Trek, uh, <laughs> is uh, The Tempest, right? Where you'd have this, you'd have somebody sort of marooned on a, on a planet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, you know, through various means, there would be people brought to that planet and sort of mystical, magical things would start happening to everybody there. Um, and in the end, the person would figure out how to get off the planet, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, so the Tempest. I mean, Tempest is one of my favorite Shakespeare plays, and um, and so that would be another reason for for me to want to do it. And it also has all those sort of um, mythical themes. You know, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> because I guess maybe because it's Star Wars, right? It's hard to imagine taking a comedy, uh, which the Tempest. I mean, Tempest. I guess is you know, has elements of comedy, but it's sort of more uh, fantasy, you know. Mm. Um, but it's hard to imagine something like, uh, you know, Much Ado About Nothing being taken. I, I think that's perfect. The end, because it's the end of a war, and it's like what happens after. That's and there's true. all of these politics, and it, like, some terrible stuff happens, like, during the course of Much Ado About Nothing, but it ends happily. And that's one thing that, like, I think, 
um, some people forget. Like George is always like, you have to give kids hope at the end. And right. and that's very much what the comedies do from Shakespeare is like it it it's like no it was really okay in the end everybody it's okay we went through all these hard times because they're terrible when like the comedies people go through terrible things like during the course of them it's not all just yeah, funny sure. games <laughs> absolutely and and I've you know I've I've said to one of my good friends I've I've been like you know sometimes I just want a Star Wars movie that's just about like daily life in on one on one of these planets like what is you know what is it so maybe taking a shakespearean plot into you know one of those would 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 be a way to do that um where there's not you know the stakes of the galaxy you know uh, but it's just like hey this is us leading our lives and falling in love and well, I actually think that there's more of a place for Shakespeare in the Mandalorian period of time because of mm. how much we've learned about their structure. It really leans into the Italian city-state period of time with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, hey, there's a duke or there's, you know, a prince. Uh, you know, there's a lot of like, oh, uh you know, royalty in the galaxy far, far away, aristocratic spheres, like we have Count Dooku, who's literally the duke of an entire planet. And that really leans into the concepts um, and the period of time that Shakespeare writes about, like with Venice specifically, mm -hmm. and the other um, cities that Verona, etc., that he's tying into during the Renaissance. And the... Uh, the politics that you could get on a planet or on like a people like the Mandalorians in like, I don't know, the quote unquote medieval times of Star Wars could be really, really interesting because you have this cool dynamic of also having a ton of art built into that culture, but also sort of this militaristic uh, sense in there. So you could you could have politics in there and I think that it would play out quite well. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting as you're saying that, I mean, I, I think, uh, I think George Lucas tried to do that a bit with the prequels. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a bit of, uh, you know, tragic hero in, in the form of Anakin, right? Like, oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, to me, the, the whole, First six movies are are like the tragedy of Anakin Skywalker, right? I mean, like yeah. that's almost textbook. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, and and like especially the fall because like that's uh -huh. him, you know, being overcome with pride, and it it ties in a lot with uh, Greek tragedy, but also specifically, you know, the the pride that the hero feels that we get in Shakespearean tragedy, and and how that. Uh, ends up being his downfall. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Which is why I mean, Revenge of the Sith is is far and away my favorite of the of the prequels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because of all the heightened emotion, etc. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and I mean, and the moment I mean, the the scenes around Order sixty six are for me some of the like most emotional scenes uh, uh, in any of the movies so yeah i i think um it's it's really interesting to hear that you had you know come up with the name pretty much after that celebration announcement uh were you given the script early did you have to wait for the movie to come out to start writing like yeah i i have to wait so i'm so i'm there on opening night with everybody else uh, experiencing <laughs> the movie, I, it's been my practice for the uh, sequel series to see the movie three, four, five times in the first few days and then start writing. It is sort of a a crash course in what this movie is all about, uh, and I and I don't get anything early. You're like, got um, your little notepad, like <laughs> right, exactly, yeah, yeah. I know people that do that for the music; they're like listening. In the theater mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. the cues for the for the themes that are coming out of the music, and uh, literally in the dark with their little notepads, like taking um, solfage like notes. Right, <laughs> to, right, right. To, yep, yep. To understand everything. So your experience is very similar in that, like you sit in the theater and like think about, okay, what are you trying to get out of this, and 
start to form things? And then did you start writing right away for The Merry Rise of Skywalker? Or did you have to wait a little bit to like see, like look at any information that was given to you? Uh, so, so no, I'm starting pretty much immediately. I mean, within a week of the movie coming out, I'm, I'm starting writing because the, my deadline is generally for, for, again, for these three, uh, has been like the end of January when the movie comes out mid December. Right. Oh. So that's, it's very fast. And I have, I've relied on, uh, the, the DK, um, visual dictionary, um, to the movies because that gives a lot of background information on, on what different characters are called. What is this snake named? Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then there were, there were a few things, you know, I've worked enough with Lucasfilm now that I was able to send an email about a few things to their story group and be like, Hey guys, I'm working on the manuscript for this. Uh, Here's a couple, like in some cases it's like, what did C3PO say right here? I think he said this, but that doesn't seem right. And like, what is this thing called? And Mm -hmm. I asked about the, um, because it wasn't in the visual dictionary. Uh, I asked what the, uh, you know, machine that the emperor is strapped into is right. called, right? And so that was able to put, able to put that in my book, um, and uh, which is the omen or omen. I'm not sure omen, how it's pronounced. Omen harness. harness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that you know, it's it's things, it's details like that that I'm able to sort of, I hope, sort of fill out the book for people who want that level of detail, and for yeah. everybody else, it can just be like something they gloss over. I saw some people uh, being really happy that you included the omen harness. So I I think that there are people who get different layers of things out of Star Wars and, you know, that those sorts of things, the details are are awesome. And, And with the adaptation to Shakespeare's Star Wars, when you take on one of these, like, for example, if you were to take on, I don't know, Solo or Rogue One. What do you think about like when you're like looking at the at the piece? Are you like, you know, trying to think about the themes you want to have come out? Like, what are the moments that, you know, I guess kind of tell me how the sausage is made in in getting a point, you know, the movie to to breathe as a Shakespearean Star Wars? Yeah. So so um, in terms of sort of broader things, right? If I were doing Rogue One, which which I would love to do, because I <laughs> you're like, hey. I, Rogue One, yeah, Rogue One is high up there for me among Star Wars movies. Um, and so if I were if I were doing Rogue One, broadly speaking, like I would I would start thinking about okay, are there are there things that I want to do with characters' speech patterns to give them something unique, right? So so with the sequel series, Ray has these monologues that are acrostic poems, and um, mm-hmm. and Poe uses references to Edgar Allan Poe poems and things like that. And so, um, so those were things that I did. So I, I would, I would be thinking about things like that. I would also be making sure that each main character gets at least one soliloquy because mm-hmm. I, I want there to be, you know, I don't want to only be hearing from uh, one character or two characters. You know, we hear a lot in the sequel series from Ray, but I also want to know what's Finn thinking right now. What's Poe thinking right now, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And so, uh, so, so there'd be some of that. And then, and then just, I mean, in terms of really how the sausage gets made, right. Then it's like, okay, let's, let's watch, let's start watching the movie. Right. And okay, yeah. here's the, here's the first line of dialogue. And it like, at first it's almost like a translation project. How does this line of dialogue translate into iambic pentameter using some of Shakespeare's vocabulary and his literary devices, that sort of thing. Um, and is there anything I want to add in here that might be special or it might give some, you know, clue as to how they're, um, how somebody's K- thinking. K2SO's asides would be epic. Oh, it would be, they would be fantastic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it would be so much fun. Um, so, uh, so it's, it's, it's all that, that kind of thing, right? Uh, it, I look for, uh, facial expressions that actors mm-hmm. make in the movies. Um, particularly sometimes when it's a, a side character and you may not may not even notice the face that they make right but like if somebody's if an actor is making a choice and really reacting to something well let's give the let's give that character an aside to see like what are they what are they thinking right there right there's a, a an example from back to the future because uh, one from star wars isn't coming up immediately but in in back to the future in the first scene in 1955 when um when when marty sort of starts sticking up uh, for George in front of Biff and his gang, um, George at first 
like Crispin Glover gives this look that, that when, when Biff starts making fun of Marty, Crispin Glover as George McFly gives this look of like, Oh yeah, see, I, I'm part of their gang too. I can make fun of him too. Right. Like he, he, he does this brilliant performance where he's, he's like trying desperately to be on the side of the bullies instead of being the one picked on again. And so I brought that out in the text because I, I want to draw out those, those moments. Yeah. And I, I think that really comes clearly through because you got you got to deal with Adam Driver's like very expressive face in, you know, all three sequel trilogy movies. And of course, Daisy Ridley's amazing acting. And um, why are acrostic poems, not that I'm very familiar with that form of verse, um, why are they, why do they lean so well towards Ray? Well, I don't know that they necessarily lean so much toward Ray. It was, it was that when I was first started writing uh, my version of The Force Awakens, I was thinking, okay, I want to do something special for Ray. What can I do? And mm-hmm. immediately the thought was, okay, there's all these sort of fan theories about her parentage and who she might be, who she might mm-hmm. be descended from. And so I want to address those in some way, but I want to do it in sort of an oblique way. And that that's when I started developing, okay, this idea of acrostics where where she would have these speeches long speeches that were an acrostic where she is starting to think about where, where you realize that sort of the subtext literally almost is, is that she is, is thinking about, um, you know, or, or making suggestions about who she might be and who she might be uh, descended from and that, that sort of thing. And it turned into, you know, and, and then those acrostic speeches themselves. Um, so, so I'm just going to read you really fast if, you, sure. if, if it's okay. The, there are, she has seven acrostic speeches in The Force Doth Awaken. And they are all, they all form, each one of them forms a line of iambic pentameter. Um, and they all go together in, in these uh, rhyming ABAB lines. And so this is, this is the sort of seven acrostics that you, that you would experience if you put them all together. Perchance I am some ancestor or child of him, the fabled Jedi, the fabled Jedi Obi-Wan. I could be kin to Skywalker, so mild, or mayhap child of Leia and her Han. Tis possible I by the Force was styled, or kin of other Jedi, now far gone. My story is by mystery compiled. Right? So I'm getting across this, like, this mystery about who she is, mm. but I'm doing it in a way that you're not going to, like, unless you go to the work of, of sussing out those acrostics, you're not going to even know it's there. Yeah. And it just seemed like the way to address it, um, because... Ray herself, the character, knows who her parents are. Now, she doesn't know she's descended of Palpatine, mm-hmm. but we also don't see her in any of, well, we don't see her in the first movie, for sure, I think, worrying about who she might be descended from either, or like worrying who her parents might be. No, um, I think that was very much like fans worrying about her. Right, t- totally. And, yeah. and so I, I guess my point is, like, I, I think it would have been inappropriate for her to have those words that I just said actually spoken as her character, because that's not what w- she was thinking of, right? Mm-hmm. But to sort of set it a level back in this acrostic Easter egg, you know, um, I, I think let's w- was a way I could could do it, I guess. Yeah. So was that something that you were thinking about? You're like, you know, who is she in that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, I and I wasn't. I wasn't too worried about it. I, I liked, I actually liked the idea after the last Jedi that she was, she was just nobody. Yeah. Because I, I felt like it sort of gave this, this, um, this hope, this, this idea that, Hey, anybody can be, yeah. could grow up and be Ray. Right. Um, yeah. And they don't have to be descendant from somebody. Special. I don't know that it was like plaguing my mind, but I knew it was out there. And anytime there's a big fan thing out there, I want to make sure it gets addressed in the books. Right. Like, oh, like, Han, like Han shooting first. Right. Like, yeah, you can't write that scene. I, I don't feel like I could write that scene and not address that in some way. And, you know, your awareness of like all the relationship stuff, you're like, oh, I guess Romeo and Juliet does fit because also some people see this, too. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's really smart because like it it plugs in kind of because it's an adaptation. It plugs into um in some ways, popular fandom of the Star Wars community, too. Right. And I mean, and who am I writing these books for, right? I mean, <laughs> writing these books... People who Star like Star Wars, Wars and Shakespeare. It's a very specific well, Venn diagram. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
but the, but the, but you know, I know that like I mean, Star Wars fans have been in general so positive and welcoming of my books, which I I'm so grateful for, and um, and so you know, it, it feels like. I'm also, I, I am also a Star Wars fan. And so I, I want to be sort of talking about the things that other fans are talking about. And I just do. Do you, do you know books. the demographics uh, like on uh, like your readership? Like, you know, is it mostly women? Is it like, you know, mostly older fans, younger fans? Like, do you know any of those? Uh, no, I, I really, I don't. Um, I only, I, no, I don't at all. Um, <laughs> I know, I know that like just anecdotally from, from sort of people who, I talk with and that sort of thing, like that, you know, that the biggest chunk is Star Wars fans. And then there's Shakespeare fans after that. And of course there are the people who are, who are natural yeah. overlaps. Um, uh, but there's Shakespeare fans. There's, there's then theater people. There's also teachers, right? So like yeah. there, there's sort of groups that tend to, uh, you know, be attracted to these books um, and Star Wars fans are biggest among them. But, but within that, I don't know like women or men or older or younger. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> what are you most proud of about writing all of these these saga books and completing everything? What am I most proud of? I mean, I well, I guess I, I guess the two the two things that leap to mind. Um, I, I'm I'm really I'm proud to have done all nine movies. Um, yeah. I you know I don't I don't. I don't think there's another author out there who has done Star Wars books who has written an adaptation of of all nine. Um, and I think uh, the closest is uh, Patricia C. Reed, who did the middle grade adaptations of the prequels. She did three, right. so right, yeah, yeah. And there are certainly people who have done multiple versions of of different movies, right? Um, and mm-hmm. and so so I, I, I like that You've I've seen the whole thing, did the whole thing, yeah. And yeah. you know, there was there was discussion. Like we were sure we were not going to do the prequels when when Quirkbooks and I were working on the original trilogy. Like for a long time, we were like, "Yeah, of course we're not going to do the prequels. Of course we're not." And then they, you know, the original trilogy was a success, and I had young people, people who had grown up with the prequels as their Star Wars, right? Yeah, um, coming to me at events saying, "Please do the prequels, please, please, please," you know, and so we were like, "Yeah, let's do the prequels." Um, and so, yeah, so there, there, I am really happy to have done all of them. I mean, I think the other thing is, is I do, I have, I've given myself lots of challenges over the years, like lots of big moments where I'm like, I don't know if I can do this and this, this is going to work like, like the John Williams, uh, character speech. Um, and yeah, and, and I, I like that I have, have continued to give myself challenges and, uh, have continued to, to meet them. So um, I don't know. That's just a, as a, as a writer and as specifically as like the kind of writer I want to be and the, the kind of writers I enjoy, I, I like um, that I've done some of those things. Now I want to see uh, a Mandalorian season one adaptation. <laughs> like sure. Mandalorian I mean, one, like, like it would be like, you know, Henry, but it's not an unhappy story. It is. It ends up happily. That's, that's. <laughs> I mean, it, it could be so. Yeah. I mean, Mandalorian would be. Because the the verbiage itself is very, um, it, it's different than they speak in in a in a non standard way in mm-hmm. in it a little bit already. It it would fit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I it would be a lot of fun. I, I'm, I'm be way more soliloquying because like there's like entire episodes where there's almost no talking. <laughs> well, I'm th- I'm actually thinking that like maybe because the show itself is a different format, right? Maybe you would just take, maybe you would not try to fit it into a, a five act play format, mm. right? Maybe it becomes more like Shakespeare's poems, right? Where it's sort of this like epic poem and each each episode of The Mandalorian is a different poem and you've got dialogue, you know, I mean, Shakespeare and his poems had dialogue between characters and things like that. I don't know. It's a fun idea. <laughs> I would, I just want to see more because I think that your adaptations add a layer of understanding from a transformational work perspective that, you know, it's your, it's, it's through a Shakespearean lens, kind of like how Star Wars through Star Wars Legos through a Lego window or something like that. But it adds this uh, beautiful layer of understanding and transformation to the work. And I love it so much. So thank you. 
Thank you for writing these and digging into the characters and trying to get in their headspace and then also writing them soliloquies for <laughs> for their epic moments. I am still looking forward to the first uh, live production when they actually are just like, yeah, sure, have the rights. Uh, that would be <laughs> amazing because I'm sure people want to do it, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah that's my hope. <laughs> and also, uh, when you write the first uh, medieval Star Wars slash Renaissance Star Wars uh, actual teleplay where we have something way set in the past with actual Shakespearean dialogue and it's all like a plot of Shakespeare, but like Star Wars. <laughs> that's, that's my goal is I'll, I'll advocate that for years. Be like, just let Ian write it. <laughs> Go do it. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I will advocate for comedies all the time because I think that we need a little bit more um, uplift and joy and hope at the end of our Star Wars. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is, that's actually why I think, I don't know, in, in some ways I almost feel like Star Wars is trapped by its name, right? Like, uh, and then why I appreciate that things like The Mandalorian are doing different things, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to necessarily be about... It no know, longer has the Star Wars the name in the title right? right so that was a that was a deliberate choice right uh to to no longer use star wars in there it's now just uh they've moved that to like the production title like it's a star wars production but it's yep. not actually yep. star wars yeah and i think that that opens up some freedom for them a little bit more yeah for sure and i think that i think they're getting more comfortable with the idea that fans just love being in that world yeah. We don't we don't need to have, you know, epic space shootouts all the time. Of course we love them, but we don't it doesn't have to be all the time. And um yeah, and and just being in that universe is is it's just so fun and and it's sort of instantly recognizable too. Nor nor do the stakes need to be galactic wide. Right. Right? That's uh, right. Sometimes personal stakes are just as emotional, etc. Yeah. We get that very clearly with rebels with the crew you know with the mandalorian with although rogue one but like the personal stories of you know rogue one the team you know and their sacrifice etc like it it doesn't necessarily need to be galactic wide as long as it means something to the characters it'll mean something to us mm -hmm. yeah. yeah i am looking forward to like you point out the new era of star wars and you know, all of the fun things that we're going into. We have so many amazing storytellers that are going to be taking on the reins. Um, and it almost feels like we're entering a new age of Star Wars with the completion of the saga. And I'm looking forward to it, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we have a lot of exciting stuff ahead of us. <laughs> all right, Ian, uh, where can people find you if they're looking for you and your work online? Sure. Uh so I I am at Ian Desher uh, on Twitter. Um, I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram. So I'm all around the socials. I've got a website, iandesher.com. Uh, I do have a Patreon page, which is, uh, I think, patreon.com slash iandesher. So yeah, I'm, I'm all over the place. And people can get books. Uh, basically, you know, I mean... Anywhere books are sold. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ask your local bookstore, have them uh, deliver it or drop it off at your house during this time. Uh, uh, of course, bigger places like Amazon and Barnes & Noble have them as well. And if you go to the Globe Theater in London, they're all there in the gift store. <laughs> that is correct. Yes. Uh, yeah. The Globe has been very, very kind, as has the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust has been uh, a super partner over the years. I wonder if they, because I'm in Canada, I wonder if they sell them in Stratford, like for that festival there. Yeah, well. I don't know. They probably do. Know. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. they do. Everybody probably sells your books that's like, hey, this is a good, you know, way intro with stories that uh, you already love. I mean, I think Shakespeare people, anytime Shakespeare is made newly relevant, uh, Shakespeare people enjoy it. And so uh, I think there's, you know, I think that's that's why these these big to me huge cultural institutions that I feel like I don't have any business being a part of uh, that are so amazing. I, I feel like they they see this benefit in it of like see it's like Shakespeare is is modern again. And yeah, yeah, and and relevant because Shakespeare mm -hmm. would definitely write something like Star Wars. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to What the Force. I'm your host, Marie-Claire Gould. Our music is orchestral music by Christy Carew, composed for What the Force. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash whattheforce. We would like to thank all our patrons, especially those who love and are obsessed with What the Force. Brad, Cheryl Bell, Melody, Night Huntress, In Wild Space, Susan, Felicia, How Rude, Anna Perez, Macau Mom, Neil, James, and Joel and D. Make sure to like and subscribe on YouTube or leave a five-star review on iTunes or other podcast apps. It helps others find the show. You can connect with us on Twitter at What the Force Show, What the Force Podcast on Facebook, and our website where we have expanded our content, including reviews, metas, and articles at whattheforce.ca. You can also connect with us on our Discord. Links are in the liner notes. Feel free to reach out and start a conversation. Cheers. Cheers.